The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Donald Trump started fundraising off his mugshot less than an hour after it was released in the Georgia racketeering trial last Thursday and once again slammed the prosecution. What has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows it. The former president is also criticizing the decision of D.C. federal judge Tanya Chutkin to set a date of March 4th for the federal trial over his alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election. That's one day before Super Tuesday. Trump called her a biased, Trump-hating judge on social media. Trump's team had asked for a trial date two years later in 2026, but prosecutors argued a speedy trial is needed to prevent the jury pool from being tainted. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin. Judge Tanya Chutkin said that Trump, like any defendant, will have to make the trial date work regardless of his schedule. There's a societal interest to a speedy trial. Should a judge take into account the fact that he is campaigning for president and she's scheduling a trial date in the midst of it? To a certain extent, I think yes, but overridingly, I think no. That is to say, I think there are circumstances by which people should be allowed to have timeouts in the course of a trial or in the run-up to the start of a trial, but not in the nature of the types of timeouts that Trump is asking for. For example, whether there be a trial in January or March of this coming year or 2026, as Trump asked for. I think in those broad terms, she has to say, no, I'm sorry, your day job just doesn't permit it. But if there's a short time delay or extenuating circumstances, then I think she should be mindful of it. And I think she actually is trying to do that when she moved the trial from January to March, saying, look, it's complicated. You've got a lot of stuff going on. I'm going to give you two extra months from what the prosecutor wants. And I think that's what should happen in this case. The defense is arguing that they can't go to trial in four months, given the millions of documents. The prosecution says, you know, there aren't that many key documents. And we've created a file of 300 documents. Quote, it's essentially a roadmap to our case. Can the defense rely on what the prosecution says is a roadmap to their case? No. They have to make their own roadmap, and they have to be able to have enough time to cull through the documents to make sure that they can create their own roadmap. But in this case, much of the documents that form the basis of the case, the heart of the case, come from the defendant himself. They are his texts or emails from his associates or documents that they've produced in respect to subpoenas. So it's not like these are documents that they are 
lacking familiarity with. And so I think that it is not unreasonable for them to have a trial date in March. I think that if they acquire the resources to look through this, then they should be able to. The one thing that we have to keep in mind is, one, Trump had a lawyer working on this case for a year and a half or so and just fired him and hired a, a new lawyer. The new lawyer says, I don't have the resources to really cull through all the discovery. Well, Trump is purportedly a billionaire. And if he doesn't have the resources necessary, then Lauro, the attorney, he has to say to his client, we have a trial date coming up. I need more resources. And it should be on the defendant an obligation to make sure that his team is properly resourced because they can't claim lack of resources and get a trial delayed. So they can't use it as a delay tactic. But to the extent that they really have honest need for additional time, then I think they can petition the court periodically for that. But I think she's given them a good enough leeway to get this done. So prosecutors said the D.C. federal trial would take four to six weeks. So that would push past the March 25th date of the New York trial. But Judge Chutkin said that she had a phone call with Judge Merchan, who's the trial judge for the New York trial. So do you think that they worked it out? Yes. And I think that Bragg, the district attorney in New York, has signaled that he's willing to delay his trial to let the federal case go forward. So, yes, I think that New York will take a second seat behind the January 6th trial, and that will create a conflict. What about the Atlanta trial if it starts on October 23rd? In other words, if three defendants go on trial and it's not Trump, I mean, is there any, you know, excuse for him there? I don't think so. If there is a speedy trial with Sidney Powell and Cheeseboro or anybody else who wants to join it, and the judge severs those defendants from the remainder who want to delay the trial, then I think the trial would proceed against those who have asserted their rights to a speedy trial. And Trump or any other defendant can sit in and watch that trial and get a you know preview of how the government's case will come in. And there's an advantage to them in that. Of course, there's a disadvantage, which is that those three people who have the speedy trial most likely are going to blame Trump and say that they were just following orders and it was he who was the culprit and he won't be in the courtroom to defend himself. So there's a yin and the yang of this thing. But no, that would not be a basis, in my view, for that trial to be delayed because Trump says I can't be there and therefore I'm going to be prejudiced. Before we go back to the D.C. federal trial, so it's Cheeseboro, who has been characterized as the architect of the fake elector scheme, and Sidney Powell and John Eastman, all lawyers, want a speedy trial. Why do you think they want a speedy trial? Well, I think that they think that, one, it's in their best interest to just get this over with. But two, I think more importantly, I think there's an advantage to somebody like Cheeseboro or Sidney Powell, who are lawyers, who will be able to say in a separate trial of their own, all we did was provide legal advice. And to the extent that there were actions that were taken that contravened the law, that was not our intention. Our intention was to say, here are our theories. Even if you know there was a Hail Mary component to it, it was still non-frivolous legal advice. And we would rather be two lawyers sitting in the courtroom pointing a finger at Donald Trump as a person who misinterpreted what they said and acted in an illegal way and not have him there to say, to the contrary, you guys were the architects. I think it allows for them to put in their defense of just, you know, advising their client 
without anyone pointing back the fingers and say to them, no, 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 you were co-conspirators in a criminal trial. So I think separating them from the others, probably the lawyer's view is in their better interest in a more streamlined prosecution. Now we'll go back to the D.C. court. John Loro, who is Trump's attorney, said he's going to file several <clears throat> motions. And one, which I think everyone expected, arguing that Trump was immune to the charges, given that the indictment covers the period when he was president. Is that a good argument? Yeah, it's a good argument in the sense that it's not been decided by the Supreme Court. Whether it's an argument that will prevail is a different question. And there are lots of cases that are sort of dancing around this point. Trump versus Vance is one of them. Remember, that's the Supreme Court case that was decided in 2020 when Trump said he should be immune from a grand jury subpoena for his tax records. And the court said that, no, the president enjoys no absolute immunity from state criminal subpoenas, and they made the private papers available to the prosecutors. So it said, in that context, no immunity. Then you had Nixon versus Fitzgerald, where Nixon claimed immunity, and the court said, no, he's not immune from civil lawsuits. And you had Paula Jones, similarly. So there are a lot of cases out there which sort of narrow the circumstances under which immunity applies. But there's nothing directly on point as to whether or not in the context of a criminal case against the former president, he has immunity. I think the question will arise similar to the way it arose yesterday in the Mark Meadows case for removal to federal court, which was, were the actions under inquiry undertaken in the official capacity of the officeholder, or in the case of Meadows, the chief of staff. And if they were undertaken in his official capacity as president or his official capacity as chief of staff, then it makes it a very close question as to whether or not immunity, and in the case of Meadows, removal applies. So he is absolutely right to file the motion, and it's a good motion to file. I just don't know, because there's not been a decision directly on point, how it'll be decided. A more important question, perhaps, is, say the court hears the motion to dismiss the case for immunity. And the court says, you know what? I don't think so. I don't think you were acting in your official capacity. If that is a decision that is made on a legal question, then it is immediately appealable. If it's a factual question, you have to wait till after the trial. So there's another whole question of if they're denied their motion for immunity, can they immediately appeal it to the Court of Appeals and then to the Supreme Court, which if they can, means this case is not going to trial for two years. He said he'll ask the judge to pause the criminal trial until the immunity issue is fully resolved. But is this judge likely to do that? No, the judge doesn't seem to have any indication that yes, he will pause it. But that's not to say that if they take a appeal of the order denying removal or once they get the motion to dismiss denying immunity, whether they have a right to immediately appeal it or not. That, to me, also is an unsettled question. And they will ask the Court of Appeals to take an immediate appeal from it, which, if they accept it, will delay the trial. If they don't accept it, the trial will go forward. And then after the trial, they'll file a you know motion for a new trial on the grounds that the immunity decision was, was wrong and that they should have had immunity. Loro also said he's going to make a selective prosecution motion, that the indictment was brought as retaliation for the federal investigation of Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, which began during Trump's administration. He said he views this as a political prosecution. 
dead on arrival, I think. I don't believe that that is viable. I think his most viable motions are motion to dismiss because of immunity and then defenses at trial, which are I lack criminal intent and I was acting on the advice of counsel. I think that that's what this trial is about. Lauro sometimes took an aggressive tone, and the judge had to caution him twice to turn down the temperature. Do you think his tone was for the media, or was he just impassioned? I mean, a seasoned trial lawyer shouldn't lose his cool, should he? No, and Lauro has a good reputation from friends of mine who practice in the courts in Florida where Lauro practices. They say he's a smart guy and and a good lawyer. I don't know whether he was posturing for his client. That's one of the problems that you often have with a client that's so belligerent that you feel like you have to be belligerent too. I was surprised to to read about the tone he took. And I was also surprised to hear him say sort of cavalierly or or threateningly, let me tell you this, Judge, right now, if you make us go to trial, I will not be able to be effective in my assistance of counsel. Sort of like threatening her to say, if you make us go to trial, get ready for an appeal if we lose on effective assistance of counsel. I just don't think that's a good approach to this court or any court to be that belligerent. Also, it appeared to upset Judge Chutkin that he had cited Powell versus Alabama, a 1932 Supreme Court decision that reversed the convictions of the Scottsboro boys, nine young black men who were falsely accused of raping a white woman. He had cited it in his brief, and the judge said the cases were profoundly different at their core. I mean, why cite that case? I'm stuttering because I can't understand it. The Scottsboro boys, as you said, falsely accused of rape, were brought to trial within six days, I believe, of their indictment in a racially charged environment, as was often the case in those types of uh, kangaroo court, white supremacy-based prosecution. To say that that is in any way analogous to this is I think an insult to the court, especially an African-American woman, to say that somehow my client, Donald Trump, analogizes to the Scottsboro boys. You know, I just don't get it. I just don't get it because factually they're an opposite, you know, six days versus almost a year of preparation and white racially charged prosecution and fairly neutral prosecution in this case. I just thought it was another example of bad decision-making by this lawyer. It's stunning to me that a trial lawyer with his experience would, you know, take this attitude with the trial judge so early on, this combative, aggressive tone. I don't know. Maybe he thinks that somehow he is going to bully her. If he is of that mind, he doesn't know this judge. I mean, this judge comes out of the Public Defender Service in the District of Columbia, which is perhaps the best public defender service in the United States. These lawyers who I've worked with when I was a Prettyman fellow in the Superior Court of the District of Columbia, we worked side by side on cases together. These are among the best lawyers in the country who are used to very hard fights. If he thinks he's going to come into her court from Tampa, Florida, um, <laughs> with bravado and try to you know, sort of roll her in some way, he needs to go back to Florida. Let's switch to Mark Meadows, which, I mean, was a busy day yesterday. So Meadows fought testifying to the January 6th committee and to the D.C. federal court. Now he's testifying to save himself. How risky is it for him to take the stand? Well, I think that he really didn't have a choice. 
because he has the burden of proving that which is required for removal, that he was a federal employee, that he was acting in the scope of his employment, and that he has a colorable defense. You weren't going to hear from Mick Mulvaney or any of the other Trump chiefs of staff to say, you know, yes, this is what chiefs of staff for Trump do. There was no one who could help him meet his burden factually other than himself. And so I think George Terwilliger, who's a friend and a good lawyer, felt that getting this case removed is Meadows' best chance to prevail on the merits. And they took the chance and put him on the stand because I think they were going to lose without him. I said earlier there was a, you know, a Hail Mary sort of legal analysis from the Cheeseboro group. But I think this, in some sense, was a similar fourth down and 20 yards to go type of pass, and they just went for it. I don't know that they connected. I think that the judge was very skeptical that that which Meadows says was in the scope of his federal employment, like calling Rassenberger or visiting the site of the audit, was that which a federal employee can do, especially when the Hatch Act prohibits federal employees from getting involved in political campaigns. So I think he's not going to win, but I think that Williger thought that this was an important gamble to take, and they took it. There were several times when he said that he couldn't recall the details of events in late 2020 and early 2021. And, you know, the judge also pressed him at some points to be more specific or to actually answer the questions. And it seemed as if there were a lot of holes in his testimony. For sure. And um, when he said, I'm the president's alter ego, I'm his right hand. I am the person who is the gatekeeper. I know essentially everything that there is to know because that's my job. And then he says, oh, I didn't realize that there were going to be lawyers on the telephone call to Georgia and that this was about the election interference lawsuit. Oh, I didn't realize that we were suing, the campaign was suing in Michigan. It doesn't strike me that you can read those things side by side and not say, oh, really? You're the alter ego. You're the right hand man. You know everything that's going on. But on these two crucial events that you are named in this indictment, you say, oops, I didn't know that. I think the judge will be very skeptical of that. So I think that it was just the gamble that they thought they needed to take. But I don't think that Meadows helped himself a lot. And also, was it a two-part gamble? Because if the judge says this was in the scope of his official duties and transfers the case to federal court, then the next move he'll make is to make a claim of immunity. Correct. Exactly. So if you get a trial judge who says, yes, you were acting in the scope of your employment, and therefore this is removable, then that same analysis that got him the removal will be the same analysis that they'll argue gets him immunity. So it was a predicate for that. And not that you needed to do it that way, but the trial judge ruling on the question of in the scope of employment in the removal case, you know, sort of would help that decision for immunity when the motion would dismiss on immunity grounds is filed. Finally, so what do you think the chances are that one of these criminal cases will be tried and completed before the election? Well, I think, honestly, the case that should be completed and tried before the election is the Mar-a-Lago case. That's the most straightforward case. There's some national security documents issues that need to be worked out, but it's a pretty narrow set of questions that have to be answered. So if Eileen Cannon, you know, sort of moves this case along, that case really should be able to go forward before the election. 
as to the January 6th or the Fulton County case, it really depends on what happens in the pretrial motion stage. If all these motions are filed and the defendants lose and they're not immediately appealable, then I think we'll get a trial also in one or both of those cases before the election. But there are so many if, but if there's this case filed, what if there's that motion? So you can't really say, but if it all goes the prosecutor's way, then I think the calendar allows for it. Thanks so much, Michael. That's former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. More than 93,000 claims have been filed by veterans, their relatives, or camp employees who blame their cancer, Parkinson's disease, and other health issues on the contaminated water at Camp Lejeune. So far, the Navy has not settled any of the claims. That's led to more than 1,100 lawsuits that potential victims have filed in federal court. And now there's a clash between the plaintiff's lawyers and the Justice Department over how the courts should manage what could be thousands of lawsuits over payouts by the government. Marines sickened by their tours at Camp Lejeune say they've waited nearly 40 years to have the right to present their case in court, and they don't want to wait any longer. Joining me is Kostu Basu, senior enterprise reporter for Bloomberg Law. Tell us about the background of this fight by veterans over the contaminated water at Camp Lejeune. So, you know, this has been a battle like 20 years in the making. You know, early lawsuits were thrown out of court. However, in August of 2022, President Biden signed a bill called the PACT Act, which included compensation, a possible compensation for those affected by toxic water at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, and uh, a way for them to file lawsuits if their claim was denied by the Navy. 
So more than 93,000 claims and more than 1,000 lawsuits. So they have until August of next year to file their claims with the Navy? Yes, and we are expecting that number to go up substantially. You know, the Department of Veterans Affairs estimated that about 1 million people could have been exposed to toxic water at Camp Lejeune. So that explains the scramble by law firms and the search agencies to find more Lejeune clients. I mean, the Navy hasn't settled any of these claims. Yes, and, you know, people have been filing claims essentially since the bill was signed into law. And there have been about 93,000 claims as of this week. And they told me yesterday that none of these uh, claims have been settled. The veterans, you know, if, if a claim is not settled in six months by the Navy or it's denied, they can file a lawsuit in the Eastern District of North Carolina. Both sides have filed proposals on how this should be managed. What do the competing sides want? Attorneys for the potential victim, they say that they've been waiting for four decades to make their argument in court. They don't want to wait any further. They want the first trial to be in the first quarter of 2024. The United States Department of Justice, they say that it might take a little longer to develop relevant expert testimony. And they're saying that, yeah, we could go to trial in 2024. It'll be some time later. And so who will make the decision? So there are four judges in the Eastern District of North Carolina who will be deciding in the coming weeks how to manage these huge volume of cases and come up with a plan. There has also been a challenge to the appointment of the lead plaintiff's lawyer, and the lead lawyer has a lot of power in a case like this. Yes, uh, the lead counsel, who is Ed Bell, a South Carolina lawyer, and there's six other co-lead counsels. They essentially have a lot of control on how these cases will move forward. And what do we know so far about how the cases are going to be tried? We don't really know at this point if they're going to bring a whole lot of cases together and have one trial or have a bellwether case. It's kind of up in the air. They'll definitely look at these two proposals and kind of mesh them in some ways, I think. We'll know in the coming weeks. Thank you, Stu. That's Kostu Basu, Senior Enterprise Reporter for Bloomberg Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing to the Bloomberg Law Podcast or downloading the show at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And attorneys get the latest in AI-powered legal analytics, business insights, and workflow tools at BloombergLaw.com. With guidance from our experts, you'll grasp the latest trends in the legal industry, helping you achieve better results. For the practice of law, the business of law, the future of law, visit BloombergLaw.com. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. 
Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.